do hope you've had your drink of choice or a wake-up call or something to make sure that the brain is firing as best as it possibly can. Um, huge thanks to John Merriweather as well and the team here. Uh, it's just a privilege to be hosted by Outlook Christian Church. So hopefully over the course of this weekend, if you're coming to one or more of the events, obviously you're a sucker for punishment, um, but hopefully you'll be able to engage with some of your questions and things that are meaningful as well. This morning we're going to be picking up on the topic, Has Science Buried God? And one of the reasons why this has been so important is because there's a deep cultural perception that that's certainly the case. In 1966, Time magazine, they published one of their most infamous cover stories ever, where it's just three words red ink on a black background, is God dead? And if you go and get this offline and you read through the headlines and then the lead article, what you'll realize is that it traces decline in belief in God in the Western world, particularly amongst the educated elites and those who are engaged with the academy, the secular universities. And when you trace through the journalists writing to try and discover what does Time magazine think was the cause of this decline, who murdered God, to borrow some of Nietzsche's language, and you'll realize very quickly it's the thought of scientific progress, that the more that the light of science has dawned upon humanity, the more that that's caused God or belief in God to retreat into the shadows. And let me start just by taking a couple of minutes to lay out the case against God. Now, today, many high-profile atheistic scientists and intellectuals, they see God and science as competing explanations for our universe. The God explanation, it relies on revelation, it's about faith, it tends to divide humanity into all kinds of religious thought, and it shuts down questioning you're not allowed to ask. Whereas the scientific explanation, well, this requires and relies on reason and evidence. It unites humanity around the common torch of being able to investigate and ask questions and peer review and community knowledge. And that's their thinking. You have to choose between science or God, that these two are at war. And apart from a few ignorant pockets of the human race in certain parts of the world, their belief is that science is ultimately winning that fight. This is why Neil deGrasse Tyson, a famous science communicator, he argues that God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. You see, for Tyson, religious people believe in this God of the gaps idea, a supernatural being who fills holes in your knowledge of the natural world. And he's not alone. In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, a renowned science writer and zoologist from Oxford, he writes that creationists eagerly seek a gap in present-day knowledge or understanding. And if an apparent gap is found, it is assumed that God, by default, must fill it. Dawkins goes on to argue that religion is lazy, anti-scientific thinking. And you can see where they're coming from. Just like in the ancient world, whenever someone saw a bolt of lightning like we've had in the last 24 hours, well, they didn't understand about electronic, uh, electric discharge from the upper stratosphere connecting with the... They don't know what that is, so what did they assume? Well, it's Zeus up there from the top of Mount Olympus getting angry at some poor human being and bolting them from above. Or they hear thunder, and they don't understand that it's the rapid expansion of air and heat caused by the lightning that creates that sound, and so what do they think? Well, it's Thor, Chris Hemsworth, up there in the stars, fighting some alien battle. And that's what's making this noise as he strikes his hammer. You see, for Tyson and Dawkins, they believe that the Christian God fits into this kind of category. It's an explanation of the universe for the scientifically 
illiterate. And that's the major case that science has made God unnecessary. It's pushed God out of the arena as an explanation. He's no longer needed, whether in biology because of evolutionary theory and Charles Darwin, the origin of species, and now even in cosmology with Krauss and um, uh, um, Hawking and others being able to give us theories about the origins of our universe. Now, at the outset of this morning's talk, I want to make a confession. It is absolutely true that some Christians, both dead in the past and alive today, have been guilty of buying into the belief that God and science are at war. And so many Christians, because of this, have gone on to adopt an anti-science attitude. That's self-evident from our history. It's self-evident from internet forums, maybe from some of the people that you know. But what I want to do this morning is explore whether Christians should adopt that kind of posture or attitude, given that the great commandment from the lips of Jesus of Nazareth was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And also, as Francis Schaeffer, the great 20th century thinker, pointed out, this world is God's world, which means all truth is God's truth, scientific or otherwise. So with that in mind, we're going to raise this question, has science buried God? And there's a million things I could say, but I'm going to focus in hopefully on a few that are helpful before leading into Q&A, and maybe we can tease out a few more. The first thing I want to discuss is what I call the problem of the Christian scientist. And here I want to make a reasonably modest point by making a simple observation, since that is a big part in and of itself of the scientific method. Now, if God and science were ultimately at war, then there's a very specific set of casualties we would expect to find on the front lines, namely Christian scientists. I mean, after all, if science does disprove either God or the Bible, then surely any scientist worth his salt would be the first to jettison belief in God. But the problem is, for this supposition, that that just isn't happening on a global scale. Of the many global studies that you'll find exploring religious beliefs among scientists and even elite scientists, the data suggests an interesting split. There are a lot of scientists who believe in a higher being, and there are a lot who do not. There are a lot of uh, scientists who believe that in some god or higher intelligence is involved in our origins, whether they're setting the universe up and its systems or being more specially involved along the way. And then there are others who think that God has nothing to do with this universe whatsoever. The scientists are split in their beliefs. Take the two directors of the Human Genome Project, perhaps the most significant scientific endeavor of our time. One of them, the first, was a man named Francis Crick. He was an out-and-out atheist. But the second director of the Human Genome Project was a man named Francis Collins. He's an evangelical Christian. Or take two brilliant Cambridge physicists, as I said before, Stephen Hawking, a very outspoken atheist in his approach, and Sir John Polkinghorne, the president of Queen's College at Cambridge. Now, what separates these men is not their ability to do good science. They're all brilliant scientists, and yet some are atheists and some believe in God. It has nothing to do with their credentials. And so this reality that there exists people at the highest levels who are doing phenomenal science and yet believe in God should at least give us pause. In fact, of all of the Nobel Prizes that were awarded between uh, 1901 and the year 2000, over 65% of them were awarded to people who self-identified as being Christian. 
another 21% to those who self-identified as being Jewish, not just by race, but actually by religious affiliation, their own self-identification. Now, this category includes the six major fields of economics, peace, and literature, as well as medicine, chemistry, and biology. But that's over 85% of Nobel laureates in the previous century who were believers in God. Now, the reason I'm starting here with the problem of the Christian scientist is just to make a very modest point, that the claim that science has buried God must be self-evidently false, for the very simple reason that some of the world's brightest scientific minds are themselves believers in God. If science had buried God, then someone forgot to tell an awfully large number of prize-winning scientists. Now, the second thing that I want to explore this morning is actually the story of God and science in history. Because when you study the history of science, it's quite an embarrassment to this belief that science has buried God. Renowned historians of science, guys like Joseph Needham studying in Asia or James Hannum within Europe and the rest of the world, they've identified that if you explore this landscape of human civilization, it wasn't the philosophers of Greece, it wasn't the barbarians in Germania, it wasn't the animists in Africa, nor was it the mystics in the Orient who gave birth to the modern scientific method. It was a combination of Muslims under the golden age of Islam and then Christians, at least a Christianized Europe in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries. That was the womb out of which ultimately the modern scientific method was born. Now, don't hear me wrong. This isn't to say that there wasn't good philosophy being done in these other arenas or natural discoveries being made or great technologies being developed or equations mathematically being worked out. But for the most part, they didn't lead to the explosion of scientific thinking and certainly not the inductive method of observation, experimentation, the systematic study of nature. And one of the interesting things to realize is if you trace back to its origins of this scientific revolution, all of them were believers in God. Think of it. Robert Boyle in chemistry or Johannes Kepler in mechanics, Isaac Newton in physics, Michael Faraday in magnetism, Blaise Pascal in hydrostatics, a philosopher, an inventor. The list goes on and on and on. All of these guys were Christians, believers in God, believers in the Bible. And we need to stop and ask, why? Was this just an accident of history? Or was there something in the waters of a Judeo-Christian Europe that enabled it to become the womb out of which the modern scientific method was born? And this is precisely what these thinkers have come up with. It was the famed Oxford professor C.S. Lewis who sums up in one sentence what these historians of science take entire tomes to write when he says this, that men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. They believed in a cosmic legislator. You see, the Bible and Christianity, it teaches what science has to assume to even get off the ground. The very first pages of the Bible open with this astounding announcement. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That God, a rational mind, a lawgiver, he designs this universe to function according to these intelligible natural laws, which then he gives us as his creatures, made in his image, patterned after his own mind. Not only the capacity to discover, but even deeper, the command to discover. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and rule over it. 
And if you're going to irrigate deserts, if you're going to build cultures and buildings and architecture, you need to understand the natural functions, the laws upon which this universe is built. And this is precisely what these first Christians saw themselves as doing. As they read the scriptures in this cultural mandate, well, Rene Descartes, he insisted that he was discovering the laws that God had built into nature. Johannes Kepler considered himself to be thinking God's thoughts after him. Isaac Newton, as he penned the Principia Mathematica, one of the most famous treatises in the history of science, he did so with the express purpose put into the beginning that in speaking of this cosmic laws, it would help his skeptical and deistic friends come to believe in a cosmic law giver. For them, these men didn't see their belief in God, their faith, as hindering science. Rather, they saw it as the very fuel, the engine, driving their desire to study this world that God had made. They saw it as worship. So when popular scientists today argue that Christianity is anti-science at its core, I can only suppose that they're reasonably ignorant of this historical and philosophical roots of their own profession. It's actually a good reminder for us that whenever people step outside their own named field into others, often they try and bring across the authority from that field, but it just doesn't translate. You see, not every claim from the mouth of a scientist carries with it the authority of science itself. And a lot of scientists make very poor philosophers and very poor historians. But let me come to the crux of the matter for many of you. What about the great advances that we've made scientifically? I mean, is it true that cosmology and biology have ruled God out of the picture and disproved the Bible altogether? So here's the next major question. Do the discoveries of science point towards or away from a creator? And here, perhaps like the split in the scientists at the beginning, the jury, it's very much out. Some scientists say, yes, absolutely, science does point towards God. But a lot of other scientists equally say, no. It either doesn't speak to the God question or it points away from God. However, what's fascinating about this second category of scientists is at least none of them tend to deny that the universe at least has this appearance of design, even if they're committed a priori at the beginning to be able to explain that away without reference to God. I remember watching one interview that was done with Richard Dawkins, the zoologist I mentioned before, where he was asked about the origins of life on our planet. And given the failure in chemistry to be able to come up with workable models for abiogenesis or how non-life becomes life, it was Dawkins who suggested, well, perhaps aliens seeded life on our planet, whether intentionally or as a form of panspermia coming of some other kind of rock. But by doing so... That's an interesting admission, because in saying that life is too complex to have come about on its own, all he's really done is kick the bucket back a step. He hasn't explained the origin of where that alien life came from in the first place. Or when it comes to explaining the mathematical language at the very heart of our universe, the thing that governs our universe, it was just in the last 12 months that Neil deGrasse Tyson, he recently shocked the public when he said that it is probable that our cosmos, us included, are actually part of a complex computer simulation. That for those old enough to remember what it is, that we really are in the matrix, so to speak. So it's true. There is always some naturalistic explanation you could give for the apparent design, ultimately bringing it upwards to this kind of digital view. 
And the truth is, who knows where science is going to be in 100 years? Personally, I'm not all that fond of pitching my theological beliefs to a particular scientific course that might end up getting disproved a decade from now. But I don't think Christians should be afraid to wade into the evidence to see what does the natural world seem to say, exploring how it may point towards God. Because after all, the Bible states clearly that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the skies proclaim the work of his hands, Psalm 19.1. And we experience this intuitively. Just on Thursday night, I was having dinner with some friends out there in East Toowoomba. The storm had passed over, and as we're sitting under the dark night sky in the distance, just watching this electric storm in the sky illuminating the clouds, awe and wonder just break in upon the human heart. The same feeling whether you look through a a microscope or a telescope, looking at the beauty and intricacy of nature, those feelings They break in upon us. I think they're there, designed to lead us ultimately to worship. The Apostle Paul speaks in Romans 1.20 of, for since the creation of this world, something of God's existence has been made known, his divine might and power being clearly seen, perceived, evidenced by what God has made. And so let me share just one out of a number of remarkable discoveries in the last hundred years that I think give great evidence for the fact that this universe is itself the creation of a creator that points upwards towards God's existence. And the one that I'll share today has to do with this idea of what scientists describe as fine-tuning. Now, cosmologists, when they trace back the past history of our universe, whether using light from very far, our ultra-deep telescopes, or the mathematical equations that were developed in the previous century, What they realize is in the first picoseconds of our universe, the very beginning moments, the smallest fractions of time at the very beginning of time, space, matter, and energy, that our universe is built upon some 50 or so ratios, quantities, constants, these fundamental building blocks that all had to be precisely tuned for the universe to be able to support life anywhere in its vast reaches. Picture it this way, one of those old-school heritage bank vault doors, right? Big, thick door with steel locking mechanisms. And the only way you're getting into the vault of life is by precisely tuning 50 individual dials to within a tiny parameter for that door to open and life to exist anywhere. Now, let me just give you one example of this fine-tuning. It's called something the strong nuclear force. This is the ratio that turns quarks into neurons and electrons in an atom, and it binds them together. It stops an atom from ultimately going nuclear. And the scientists will tell us that were you to alter this ratio in either direction by any more than 1 in 10 to the 37th power, then the universe as we know it would not exist. Life would not be capable anywhere in its vast reaches. Now, the question is, this ratio, it doesn't have to be what it is. There's no super laws that we've discovered that say it has to be made this way. It could have been different. And so the only two explanations we have for this remarkable fine-tuning is either it's designed this way so that life can exist, or it just happened this way by chance. And to get a sense of the chance that we're talking about here, there's a physicist in North America, a man named Hugh Ross, who gives this image. He said, imagine if you covered the entire continent of North America with five or 10 cent pieces. 10 cents is closer to the American coin. I'm trying to translate here for the size. Cover all of it. That's the United States, where Donald Trump is. It's Canada, building a wall to try and keep Donald Trump out. And it's Mexico, who isn't very well liked by Donald Trump. 
Think of the entire massive continent here, cover it in 10 cent pieces, and then stack that all the way up to the moon, some 380,000 kilometers away at its furthest point. Now, you need a lot of sticky glue once you get out to zero gravity, I understand, but just imagine it's physically possible. Now take one billion continents the same size as North America and repeat the process. Cover them in 10 cent pieces and stack it up to the moon. That's one billion in one stacks as big as North America, stacked up to the moon. Then take one more coin, dip it in red paint, hide it somewhere in all of those stacks, blindfold your friend, let them walk out into the wildernesses, and they get to choose at random from all of these stacks just one coin. The odds of them choosing that red coin are roughly speaking 1 in 10 to the 37th power. The chance that just this one ratio is so finely tuned to allow for life. And when you stack improbability on improbability on improbability, British astrophysicist Sir Roger Penrose, he came up with the numbers something like 1 in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power. Now, just so you know, anyone who works in probability theory, they say as soon as you get 1 in 10 to the 50, you're really beyond anything like a live possibility. You're into the realm of absolute impossibility. There aren't even that many atoms in the known universe. Yet 1 in 10 to the 10 to the 123 is an insanely small chance. Now, looking at this, one British astrophysicist, Sir um, Fred Hoyle, not a believer in God, a skeptic, made this observation in looking at the fine-tuning. And this is 30 years ago now, before the extent of the fine-tuning that we've now discovered. He said, A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with the physics, as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. That is as close as you will come to finding an atheistic scientist quoting the Bible, Psalm 19.1, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and that the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, for some, that's informative, it's compelling, it's strong evidence to point towards design. I kind of lean in that direction. I think this is a good, strong reason to believe from science there's an intelligence behind our universe. But not necessarily everyone is convinced, and that's something you have to discern in your own mind. But here's the biggest point that I want to make this morning before we do Q&A. It's really important to recognize that science does not, indeed cannot, have the final word on God. Why? Because science is, by definition, the wrong tool to prove or disprove God. It's like trying to hammer in a nail with a teacup. It just doesn't work. Why? Because by design, science cannot measure anything that is beyond nature, anything that is supernature, supernatural, metaphysical. Atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, they'll tell you that the only uh, questions worth asking are questions that science can ultimately answer, that you should only believe in what you can scientifically prove. But again, note what's happening here. That's not a scientific statement. That's a philosophical statement, a statement of belief. It's a religious statement. It's something called the philosophy of scientism, not science itself. And you can trace, if you're keen to, the history of this doomed idea right back through the logical positivism of the 1960s and 70s with A.J. Iyer, right back to the early empiricism of David Hume. It just doesn't work. I was once watching a debate between an eminent atheistic scientist, a chemist from Oxford named Peter Atkins, and then a 
Christian philosopher named William Lane Craig for the Talbot School of Theology. They're in the discussion portion at the end of the debate. And at one point, Atkins looks at uh, William Lane Craig and says, do you deny that science can explain everything? To which the philosopher says, yes, I do deny that science can explain everything. Atkins says, well, tell me one thing that science cannot answer or explain. To which William Lane Craig says, well, I'm glad you asked because I have a whole list of things that I think cannot be scientifically proved or even necessarily explained, but which every person has good reasons to, is warranted to believe. He starts to go through the list. Number one, logical and mathematical truths. Science depends upon the axioms of logic and mathematics. So to try and argue from them using the scientific method is arguing in a circle. Number two, metaphysical truths. The idea that everyone here isn't just a figment of my grandiose imagination right now, that you're actually other minds, other people, that this external world is real and not just part of the matrix. That's not something that I can prove because I'm in, stuck in the system. Whether my own mind, whether the matrix, you can't use the scientific method to disprove metaphysical truths. Ethical truths. David Hume was right. As a skeptic, a non-believer in God, when he identified the is-to-ought gap, science can describe what is about the universe. It can never describe what ought to be. You cannot derive goodness from an investigation, scientifically speaking. Number four, aesthetic judgments. Your statements about beauty and value, these just cannot be assessed by the scientific method because the beautiful, just like the good, is not open to be scientifically proven. And number five, if we had time to go into it deeper, it's science itself. You see, science, as we've discussed a little bit, but much broader, it is permeated by assumptions about the intelligibility of the universe, about our mind's capacities to freely and rationally evaluate that evidence by a whole lot of values that we can't even test, that are part of our equations that we rely upon, which we can never scientifically prove. We just have to assume that that's the case to be able to begin with. Now, it was this moment as he got to point five that the host turns to Atkins and says, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. But the point isn't to score cheap rhetorical wins or victories. It's to get at the fact that most of what we believe, and indeed most of what really animates human existence, it's not based upon questions that science can answer. And because God is ultimately metaphysical, there is simply no way that science can adjudicate on the God question. The God question is above the pay grade of science. So whatever your reasons here this morning for perhaps rejecting belief in God, I just want to gently suggest that maybe science, it shouldn't be one of them. Now, Christians, I, I certainly don't believe in a God of the gaps. As one of my professors at Oxford said, John Lennox, I believe in a God of the whole show. I posit God to explain why science explains, why our universe is intelligible, why we can understand and master it. You see, a God who creates and upholds this wondrous universe, a God who gives us a mind and the command to go and harness it. You see, even if science could explain how everything happens, it could fill in those gaps, the origins of life on our planet, the origins of our universe, I still see no reason why that makes God irrelevant. Because when it boils down to it, God and science are very different types of explanations. You see, science, it seeks to explain the mechanism, the how did it happen, whereas God explains something else entirely. God explains the agency, the who and the why. 
Now, let's say that you had tons of questions still after this weekend, so I invited you over to my house in Brisbane, and you were to walk in upstairs, and you were to see in my kitchen that the kettle is boiling. And you would ask me, Dan, why is the kettle boiling? And suppose I answered this way. Well, as electricity flows from the socket down through the coil into the copper element at the base, the copper element, the resistance in it, it causes the electrical energy to transfer into heat energy, which then passes by way of induction up into the base of the kettle, making the water molecules agitate faster and faster until eventually they're able to break the surface tension of the water, transfer from a liquid state into a gaseous state that's given off in steam. That's why the kettle's boiling. Now, you may be reasonably impressed, and you're thinking, that's before he said coffee? But I haven't actually answered the question that you're really asking. I've given you a scientific explanation. I've answered the mechanism, the how. But that's not the question that you're ultimately asking. If I was to say to you, though, well, the kettle's boiling because I want to have a coffee with you and I expect we're going to have a long conversation, that's the kind of answer that you're looking for. Not the scientific one, but the personal explanation of agency. And you can't discover that agency explanation simply by doing a scientific study of that kettle. That personal agency explanation needs to be revealed. You could observe my wife for the next weekend, and you could watch all of her body language and her words. You could come to maybe know something of what she thinks about me and how she feels towards me. But if you really want to know what's going on in here, what's going on in here, that's something that she needs to reveal. You see, God and science, they both speak. But if you only hear one voice, then you'll never know the full story of who we really are and why we're really here. Which is why it's appropriate, I think, at a point like this, to ask the major question that science doesn't speak to. Do you know why you exist? Not which parents do you have, which biological lineage, not what's the chemical, biological makeup of who you are, but do you know who made you and why you exist on this planet? Because that's not something you can look to cosmology or biology for. For that, you have to look to Genesis. And you have to look to Jesus. Well, since time is short, and you probably want to get to the Q&A, the cross-examination, I want to quickly just finish with three things. A historical parable, a quote, and then an invitation. Come back with me to that Time magazine cover. 1966, because of the influence of guys like Nietzsche and naturalism and the liberal school of theology, the question was asked, is God dead? Just three short years later in 1969, Time magazine ran another cover story. Is God coming back to life? Now, why did they run this? Well, because the same journalist discovered that there is a growing movement in faculties right around the world, particularly philosophy faculties in top-flight universities, who are arguing that there are a host of good reasons to believe in God. Personal accounts of spiritual encounters, spiritual experience, religious experience, personal transformation. Historical arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. Philosophical arguments for contingency and ontology. Moral experience of good and evil as real categories and not just illusions. The witness of the unique caliber of the life of Jesus of Nazareth in history and his influence. And you can add to these things like the origins of our universe, the fine-tuning of our universe, the development of complex information that's at the very language of life, biology. You see, that last bit, the science, it helps perhaps in the case for God, but it isn't at all the final word on God. 
That's the historical parable. Now a quote. Here are the words of Albert Einstein, arguably one of the greatest scientific minds of the previous century. But hear me clearly. This guy didn't believe in Jesus. He also didn't necessarily believe in the Jewish God. He described himself more as a pantheist, a believer in Spinoza's God. Not that God is a personal being, but more that God expresses himself in the laws of nature. But yet he was once interviewed about what was a popular idea at the time, that Jesus, the stories in the Gospels, these are all just legends. That the Christ of faith, the one that Christians believe in, is so different to the Jesus of history, maybe the Jesus of history didn't even exist. That was a popular belief amongst German theologians at the time. And he was interviewed about his own thoughts on Jesus. Here's what he said. That as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrasemongers, however artful, so that no one can dispose of Christianity with simply a witty remark. If you want to know why you're here and for whom you exist, there's an encouragement from a scientist who never even became a Christian, but to go and explore the life of Jesus, this luminous, towering figure of the Nazarene, to see what light he can shed on life's deepest and ultimate questions. And let me then finish with a bit of an invitation. Science can tell us a great deal. It's an awesome thing. My kids are probably alive for it. I fly on planes because of it. We have cars and cell phones because of it. We microwave food because of it. Science can tell us a great deal. But it cannot tell you why you exist. It cannot explain most of the things that we treasure in life. Free will, love, ethics, aesthetics, history, intuitions, imagination, even our own consciousness. Science doesn't speak to it. And personally, these are some of the reasons why I'm a Christian. I think Christianity offers a much deeper or richer explanation of the world. It doesn't deny any of the scientific explanation. It's just more complete. It deals with philosophy. It deals with history. It deals with human nature. You see, as a Christian, I get science, but I also get Jesus, who brings with it a whole lot of other things. So here's that invitation. I want to invite anyone here who's not a Christian to take Jesus seriously over the course of this weekend and on to explore the evidence of his life, his death, his burial, and his claimed resurrection from the dead. Why don't you actually be scientific? Do an experiment while you're doing that. Open up the pages of one of the Gospels in the New Testament, the biographies that tell you about the life of Jesus. Maybe the Gospel of John. It's kind of my favorite. 21 chapters, one chapter a day, a few minutes a day for three weeks. And just every time you're reading one of those chapters, just say a prayer. God, if you're real, Jesus, if you're real, won't you reveal yourself to me? Because God isn't interested in being revealed in the disinterested test tubes of atheistic scientists. He promises to reveal himself to whoever seeks him and seeks him with their whole heart. And so that's an invitation for you. Are you willing to seek out God's existence? Are you willing to seek out Jesus' answers to life's deepest questions? And I hope that that's encouragement for you to do that. I want to offer just a brief prayer. For some of you, may that be weird. But if you don't believe in God, then don't worry. I'm just talking to a ceiling. But for some of you here this morning, maybe, maybe you're just in the process where God is starting to open you up a little bit. 
open up your mind to the questions and the invitation that truth invites questioning, but also opening up your heart to maybe there's something more to God and to Jesus than I've ever realized before. And if that's the case, and I just want to offer a quick prayer that over the course of the next few days and few weeks, he might reveal himself to you. Would you bow your heads with me just in honoring that moment and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you have not left yourself without testimony, that you don't boast or make yourself so overwhelming that people don't have the freedom to disbelieve, but that you do reveal yourself in nature, in sunrises and sunsets, in starry nights, in the wonder of design and spider's webs and leaves, the DNA code at the very foundation of life. There is beauty and complexity, intelligence wrapped up in this universe. And we thank you that even science is something into which you invite and celebrate, send us to be able to make sense of this world, to move forward the human project, to be able to bring life and hope and healing, to overcome the ravages of evil and suffering wherever we're able by using the minds that you've given us ultimately to lead to worship. But God, I want to pray too that these crumbs that you've left for everyone here, that for some this morning, perhaps their eyes, their hearts, their minds are being opened to those crumbs for the very first time and realizing that they don't have to choose between a mind and a heart, between science and God, but they get to embrace both wholeheartedly, finding deep fulfillment in all that it means to be human. And I want to pray that over the next few moments, few days, few weeks, that as their hearts opened up, their minds are opened up, that you would reveal yourself. Help them work through their questions, their barriers, their doubts. Or would you personally reveal yourself that they would experience the love that you have for them and be awakened to the purpose that you have for them and to know the price that you paid for them, that ultimately they might get to spend eternity with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.